What's up, podcast listeners? Brian here. I'm an intern on Team Gary who unfortunately has only two more days left. Today's episode is a talk Gary did in Cannes to a group of young creators in the ad industry. We love your attention for the next 45 minutes. Make sure to tweet at Gary V if you have any feedback for us. Gary V up next. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Um, <clears throat> what's, that's a hardcore setup, so I'll take it. Um, I'm really excited to do this. Uh, this is like <clears throat> the only consistent thing that I've been doing at Cannes. Uh, you know, for me, uh, unlike a lot of you, I, I didn't really grow up, you know, aspiring to be in the industry or, and didn't spend the first 35 years of my life in the industry. Um, I'll try to speak up because I know it's loud. Um, so just to give you context, because I'm sure most or half of you don't know, uh, I run a company called VaynerMedia. Uh, I started it 10 years ago with my brother, AJ. My career, you know, I was an entrepreneur. Uh, I grew up, I was born in the Soviet Union. I came to the US when I was a little kid. Very immigrant kind of upbringing. Let's go. Yep, Yagobru Puruski. Yeah, da. So, yes, Mike? Yeah, we're gonna get you a mic. No worries. Wait, you don't lose all this amazing content. No worries. Should we, should we do Q&A? <laughs> <laughs> like, real quick? And that was the Priyakhle. Yeah, Priyakhle in 1978. I really understand it, because I, like, I don't use it. Like, Russian people make fun of me. But, but if I went to, like, Moscow for a week, you know, yeah, exactly. if I just heard it enough, um, it's really interesting growing up an immigrant because your your outside world's this new place, but the house is still the old school. You know, right? That's like something I don't see. You know, you hear it. I've heard other people talk about it, but I don't think it's talked about enough. And then, more importantly, you know, I wonder what that actually means. You know, there's got to be something pretty profound about living two different worlds, and it manifests in like such fun inside jokes. Like, for example. I don't take any medicine ever. Like it's like a hardcore thing in my family. It's very like hardcore Eastern Europe. Like it's unbelievable how much that's like in my culture. Like um, and just like food. Like just growing up in the '80s in America, where like the uh, it's been amazing with the Whole Foods and the Wegmans and just these progressive food culture in America. But like in the '80s, it was like six things. So my friends would come over and like. I, I remember nobody in America in the 80s or 90s knew what pomegranate was. Like, nobody. But it was like a hardcore Russian thing. So, like, like people would come to my house and be like, it's like just like literally like look at it for like five minutes. Uh, so. Should I go since it got quieter? Or? Yeah. Okay. So, what's, there's, a, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about and I want to do even more Q&A because I think context matters. But to frame up the conversation, I think what was really cool was, you know, I was, I was a lemonade stand kid. I was a shovel snow, wash cars, like always my true hobby. To this day, I garage sale and like do all these weird things because my true hobby is business. Like I genuinely love it. I'm sure like for some of you that were probably so happy that this was an industry because you grew up drawing or creating or whatever and you're like, oh wait, that's a job? Like that's how business is for me. Like when I have downtime, I'm trying to start side businesses. So loved business. 
My, you know, grew up in an environment where my dad worked every minute to try to make it in the new world and he eventually owned a liquor store in New Jersey. I was dragged into that when I was 14. And really from day one, um, I started doing two things that are interesting to me. I started doing a lot of UI, UX, which in, in the way I would say that was I started moving my dad's store around. I used to stand behind the register and it wasn't that busy, right? Like, in a, you know, where I could watch almost every customer walk in and where would they go and what would they buy. And intuitive, as 14, I would understand, like, why do we send them that way where we sell stuff that's not as expensive as over here? Like, really, in hind- you know, a lot of this stuff in the last five years I've recalled. Even lemonade, when I was six years old, instead of standing behind my own lemonade stands, I got my friends to do it because I would literally walk up and down the streets of New Jersey watching cars drive by to try to figure out what tree or what post to put a sign on. So I've been truly intuitively chasing attention my whole life. As a matter of fact, that's gonna bubble up in a minute. One of the biggest reasons I push against television advertising and think it's grossly overpriced and overrated is not because I don't believe in the craft or a 30 second video, it's that I don't believe people are consuming them. You know, like that, that, I think that needs to matter. You could literally make the greatest thing of all time. It's kind of like the tree in the forest. Like, you're gonna spend nine months making something that nobody sees? Seems like a waste of time. So, was that kind of kid in, I'll fast forward because I want to get into the meat. In 1996, I launched one of the first three e-commerce wine businesses in America. My dad had a liquor store. We were in a, we were in a middle class area, but there was affluent towns around us. I saw people wanted wine. I started reading about wine like crazy, got super educated about wine as a 15, 16, 17 year old kid, super weird in, the, in hindsight. Launched in 96, had email open rates of like 90%, was the first advertise, like day one advertiser on Google search, day one, five cents a click, no, like typing in words that had nobody type, like, like Cabernet had no bids or like crazy uh, Built my dad's business from a three to a $60 million business very quickly. That changed our immigrant life as you can imagine kind of made it, was fancy, like, you know, in the wine world, like WizKid, Articles, AP, all the things you would kind of want. And then YouTube came out. And four months after YouTube came out, I intuitively understood it was gonna be big. And I started legitimately one of the first long form shows on YouTube. Every day, five days a week, 20 minutes, me in front of a camera, tasting four wines and talking about it. Completely exploded. like. Hardcore Web 2.0 phenomenon was on Dig.coms and Reddits and Boing Boing and just got a lot of coverage. Uh, there was a couple of vlogs, Dignation, Rocket Boom. I mean, you guys are so young. This is like this was before there was a video on YouTube that had a million views, a video. So like super early, got national attention. Conan O'Brien had me on his show. Like the whole internet was hitting me up like do it for us like it was that small of a kind of like it's crazy to even like talk about this right now because first of all because it's only 2007 it's not that long ago go on it went super viral uh, and then I realized that this whole world was going to be huge and that is I was super right about e-commerce email and Google AdWords and I did great but then I started reading articles about Google sell, you know, going public and YouTube selling for $1.7 billion. And I was like, this talent I have, I might be able to use it for something that more than selling some more champagne or Bordeaux. And so I decided to become an angel, an angel investor in early stage startups. 
the first three companies I invested in were Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that kind of changed the course of my life. This was all way, I mean, I bought my Facebook stock from Mark's parents. Like, early uh, That was good, changed the course of my life. Made it in a totally different way. And then I did something interesting. <clears throat> It's 2009, my brother's about to graduate from college, he's 11 years younger than me, we're super tight. We knew we wanted to do something together. I've, I'm now getting super attention from like family offices, you know, global billionaires, hedge funds, you know, people that want me to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to do a fund to invest because I can pick them. And that was probably the most interesting point of my career where I could have easily gone down the path of extremely in my opinion, easy money. I don't know how much you know about you know, running a VC firm, but you get 2% of the overall money you raise just for managing it, and you get 20% on the back end after you pay it back. You raise three, four, five hundred million dollars. You're making a lot of money a year just to take meetings. Um, and I remember just knowing in my heart, like intuitively, even though it was extremely attractive, I was young, I was 34, that I didn't want to not be a practitioner. I'm gonna say something pretty interesting right now, which I genuinely think is true, and it's a hyperbolized statement, but I think it's true. Uh, There's not a single person I can right now that makes more content on a daily basis than me. I put out 50 to 100 pieces of content a day across seven to 10 platforms. Like, like to be the person at this event, and, and I don't know how many people on earth exist right now that produce as much content as I do. I'm posting, again, 50 to 100 pieces of creative a day across Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, podcasts. I'm, I'm a deep practitioner, right? You know, and, and it's fun. You know, some of my lead creatives are here. Like, it's fun sometimes when we jam. Like, I love reminding my company. I'm like, look, I'm actually doing this. And there's something very powerful about that. Um, I'm not ideating producing, lo- you know, long-form video, but I'm pump- putting out content. And so... I knew that that's who I was, and so I literally went completely the other way. Instead of going down that huge financial path, I decided to build, and don't get it confused, one of the worst businesses you can build, which is a client service creative business. Um, Now, let me tell you why I did it. My ambition 10 years ago stays true today. I want to buy some of the most nostalgic brands that have ever existed when the next economy collapses. So when this economy finally collapses, I want to go buy Kit Kats, Bubblicious, K-Swiss, you know, Ralph Lauren. I want to buy brands, and then I want to be the CEO of it. And what I knew then was I understood small businesses. I understood Silicon Valley. I didn't understand Fortune 500 businesses. But I wasn't going to go get a job, so I decided to start the agency because at that point I realized marketing was my superpower. Hanging out with all those Silicon Valley titans why was I invited to the dinner? Why were they listening to me? It's because they were great at tech, but I really understood. One of the biggest reasons, forget about the current way people view Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's deep understanding of human psyche was the number one reason we connected. I think I'm an extremely good marketer because I think this entire thing that we're at right now is an internal B2B ecosystem and the only thing I pay attention to is the end consumer. I know so little about what's going on here. This is, this is literally the first three years I was here, I only did this event. 
I didn't know anything else. You guys remember, I don't, I st- Harriet just joined us to run comms from BBDO. She's incredible. I'm still asking her on the way here. She's like, we were fi- final list, what's it called? Shortlist. She's like, we were shortlisted for a bunch of stuff today. I'm like, I don't even know, I, I literally thought it was finalist. Like I still, Adam, yesterday we won a silver thing and I was like, what does that mean? Like I still am so deeply unaware of what's happening here. Not out of audacity, not out of disrespect. I actually love coming here, the vibe. I love hanging with you guys. I love this. It's just that everything I think about is the consumer. It's the only thing that matters. And, and that's why I believe that, you know, and I, I'm, I'm humbled by, some, you know, the most interesting or one of the, one of the we're doing some of the most interesting things because we just see it different. We just see it different and the way we see it is practical. So, I mean, the far majority of what you've already worked on, you would have never consumed. That's the truth. And I think that's, that's my aspiration to come to things like this. Actually have a conversation about what's going on, right? Like, Creativity is amazingly fun. I think that we have to be very thoughtful that somebody's paying us to make something happen. You know, I think there's a, a lot of audacity that seeps into this craft where it becomes about ideology and, and selfish behavior. I watch creatives and strategists make decisions all the time based on what they want to blow up a building. They want to meet John Legend. They want this joke to see the world. It has nothing to do with what the client needs and definitely nothing to do with does the end customer care. And so I think a lot about that. And so we started VaynerMedia. You know, it's interesting. My aspirations were a couple things I didn't know. First of all, the first 45 people that worked for my agency had zero days of agency experience. I mean, you want to talk about a shit show? Like, we won a million dollar scope from Pepsi and on the way out, the guy grabs me and says, hey, incredibly provocative, you're gonna get the business. This is incredible, this is what we're looking for. It's 2009. Then he goes, he goes, one piece of advice. I'm like, please, because it was so early. He goes, you need to hire somebody who knows how to make a deck. (laughs) I will never forget that. By the way, it took us another three years before we actually knew how to make a deck. We are the the fastest organically grown to a $100 million revenue agency in the industry's history. And we win no RFPs. Like we're just incapable. Because we come in with a philosophy, we're not willing to like, you know, everybody sells on an idea and it's just not something, you know, we, we, we have pregnant it, we, we flirt with it, but like the truth is we have, a, we have a philosophy, which is a couple things that we believe in that I think are unique. One, we believe that volume of creative is the cost of entry of relevance of the next decade and that we think this world needs to understand that quantity does not mean lack of quality. And more importantly, what is quality? You know, for example, I think the rise of copywriting is going to be profound over the next decade because I don't think people understand that the copy change, literally the copy that associates every blog, every post on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and things of this nature that will continue to grow in attention is massively important to the output of success. We become so visual, it's so video and Instagrammed out that people are mailing in copy. For all of you that have your own ambition to grow your Instagram, as cop- I watch copywriters in my company who are interested in growing their Instagram mail in copy because they've been sucked into how visual the medium is. So 
um, volume to us is imperative. We also think that Facebook and YouTube, and whatever the Facebook and YouTube and Instagram of the day is, that internet long-form video is actually where brand building is being done, not in the form of TVC. You know, I think that, I think that we have to have a conversation in this industry about things actually being consumed. You know, and I think that common sense needs to actually be part of the conversation. It is 2019. The far majority of people all across the globe are watching OTT at scale. There is so little network television being consumed in major 10 markets, US, Europe, like Asia, like so little. And then for that person to actually, that, first of all, they're not watching the show. And if they're even watching the show, for them to serendipitously watch a commercial, it's just not happening. Like, watching a commercial is getting dangerously close to like looking up the yellow pages. Like, and yet we celebrate it like nobody's business. And I think we have to challenge that. There's no way in your careers that TV commercials are gonna be on the pedestal. It's impossible. You're basically, you know, I look at it like this. It's a US-centric example. I know we've got a lot of people here, but every country in the world has its major retailers and has its emerging internet retailers. I think this world continues to celebrate Walmart and Target and big box retail while I keep beating the drum that Amazon is here and it's gonna be a problem. And I think that's the analogy for creative. We, 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 we have to have this conversation. Like, you can't celebrate something nobody sees. And so, that's important to me. Um, but, make no mistake, I believe creativity is the variable of success, right? The creative. All the strategy work, which is imperative, all the other stuff. The, you know, we're a fully integrated agency. We have media and creative under one roof. I believe in your career you will see all of the agencies consolidate media and creative under one roof. It is not working for the clients to have media and creative in separate rooms because I'm sure you've already seen this in meetings. When it doesn't work, everybody does this. The media agency's like, it's the creative. The creative agency's like, the media plan sucked. And, and that's been unbelievably smart for the holding companies to separate it and quite profitable, but the brands are starting to not be happy. And they're the ones who write your checks. And that will play out. So I'm excited about that. You know, I started the agency with 45 people that didn't work in the industry. I knew nothing about the industry. I read nothing about the industry. So I started VaynerMedia. I built a creative shop that I put media in the name. I had both media and creative under one roof and had no idea that it was unique. So we're, we were doing all these unusual things. What it led to is a very large agency that has not played by the industry rules but has driven business results for its clients. So now we do have 900 people globally. We do have the US, LA and New York offices and London and opening up Singapore and very frankly, feel very confident we're about to get a big scope for the World Cup in Qatar and that means Middle East and looking at, you know, South America. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think because of some of the awards we're winning this week, just I'm feeling from the creative class here a little bit of more of a, okay, you can be in the club and I'm laughing. I'm like, I don't want to be in the club. I don't mind to be in the club. But there's only one club I want to be in, which is 
wouldn't you want to be a creative that in real life when you hang out with your friends, people know what you're talking about? Like how many more times do people here want to spend 20 years of their life making TVC that when they talk about it and they're like, you know, the IBM spot and their friends and relatives are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And if they do, it's because they tried really hard to find it. Right? Um, I think that people want to, I think if you're creative, I think you want it to be seen. I just don't know what else to say. And I think, you know, what Mike and Adam will tell you if you decide to yap with them after this is after having careers in fancy places doing fancy stuff, it's fun to make. It, you know, think about all the ideas that you guys have had that will never see the day of life. Like, you guys are all 12 years away, six years away, four years away from being the final decision maker to actually see something made. Right now, you're politicking and and strategizing on how to convince the two people above you to actually make the thing you believe in. You're not in the creative industry, you're in the internal politicking industry. That's why volume will set this industry free. We have interns from day one in ad school being able to see their thoughts in market from the biggest brands in the world. Literally, interns are, we have literally interns already in our company that have had more pieces of content seen by humans than some of the people here. That's real. That's going to play out, I hope, for all of you. I want you to be in a place where you get to be creative for real instead of working at a bank and uh, fighting for a half-pregnant version of your idea to see the world. And that's why so many of you have to do things on the side because you can't scratch your itch. Good. Not too far away. Um, but I have a question because... I What's your name? Taya. Taya? Yeah. Um, I have a question. Um, my clients have to research all our TVC work and that's <laughs> the only way that they can get their budget signed off. So what's your advice? Because they really don't care about digital or like even shop up. So what's your advice to kind of get them to see it in a new way from a person who's like, yeah, down... Down the ranks. They, they're not seeing it uh, from a person that's up the ranks. So here's what I would say. Here's a really, really important piece of advice that I think will bring you value. Please don't stay quiet because you know it doesn't matter and you know it won't play well in the room. Now that doesn't mean be like me and be super combative. It means be respectful. But let me give you one humongous piece of advice. The world's gonna change. Animatics are the stupidest of all time. Ipsos is the stupidest of all time. It can't sustain itself and it will break and it's getting closer than you think. So it's important for you to share your actual points of view in these rooms because people are watching. And right now you may be frowned upon or it's silly or it's naivete or it's a kid talking, but everybody's watching and listening. And in three years when that person's fired and that goes to a new place and they have to win in digital, they're gonna be like, hey, she knew. And so, die on your sword. A lot of you are staying quiet because you know it will help you grow, but you're not, you're not a, you guys are agreeing to things you don't actually believe in. You're doing it because within the four walls you work in, that's what you know the rules are. It seems like it makes sense. The problem is we're at a point of transition. And what always happens at a point of transition is people, you guys are in a very precarious spot. You're the last of the Mohicans. So, 
you're, you're gonna uphold the past because it's gonna play in the room, but you're also gonna live through a career where it's going to be frowned upon. When you, when you, you, know, when you apply to the progressive places, they're gonna wanna know where you sit on this, what did you do about it? We're gonna talk to the clients or the other people, like if you don't have a track record of at least communicating your points of view, you're definitely not gonna have work. Most of you are not gonna have progressive digital work, which is one of the reasons you may wanna do a lot of that on your own accounts or side stuff. You're not gonna have anything to point to when shit hits the fan, and shit is gonna hit the fan. Starting to hit the fan. Thank you. You're welcome. I did? Yes. Good. Uh, how important is intuition to you? And why do you think people nowadays, especially in the business environment, overthink and overthink and forget about intuition? It's a great question. What's your name? Eglantina. Eglantina. It's a great question. I think intuition is deeply uh, foundational to doing great work, and I think it's a talent. I, I, I think you know, it's hard to groom. You know, it's, it's, I always talk about hard work, uh, because I think it's something we can all do. You can decide if you're ambitious and hungry. You could decide, if you don't burn out, that you could work longer. It's hard for me to be like, become more intuitive. You're like, how the does that mean? Like, like, where do you go with that? I think it's super important. I, I laugh at everybody talking about AI. All I'm hearing about is AI walking. Guys, nobody knows what the they're talking. This is not a tech industry. <laughs> This is not a technology-based industry. This is a creative industry. Like, everyone's talking about AI. AI is so far away, the way people are talking about it. Like, I literally was listening to people that are like, we may not have a job in three years. AI is gonna make, I'm like, AI is nowhere. It's coming, it's cool, but like, you know, everyone's on big data and research and all this stuff, and all we do is create all these layers to take away common sense, intuitiveness, and creativity. That is my biggest observation about this industry. For an industry that's creative, the entire last 20 years has been completely built to strip it all away. Why? Because it's run by banks. Guys, who here works for a holding company agency? You work for a bank. (laughs) You work for a bank. You're working for a company that's publicly held. You're an Excel sheet. The second you lose a client, there's an email sent out to the MD. Your MD has to pay 20 points to the holding company as a tax, and then she or he is worried about their bonus on margin, and not one conversation is around creativity. <laughs> so I work in like the research UX and ethnography space for digital products, and you mentioned user intuition. How does like, listening to the user, the user's point of view, I mean, our entire creative product is upside down. We win a scope, and the next day, our ambition is to have an all meeting with everybody just to create yes to every single idea, and that a week later, we are literally pumping out content at scale. Mike, Kool Aid. How quickly did we go from being assigned Kool Aid, and how many tweets were we putting out literally? Give me some context. Like how many? Like 10, 15. A day? 20 a day. Last week we had one that had 300. 300. And so our model, our model is get our client to say yes to everything up front. 
this gets, like, I'm sure the questions are going to roll, like, how? Like, we, we challenge conventional wisdom on, on brand. Like, being on brand can't be a function of one human being on the brand side being the subjective decision maker of that. That is the industry you are in right now. So, we push very hard against that. We produce enormous amounts of content. Twitter has rose in importance for us in the last, you know, year and a half. But we don't, you know, we're also very funny, you know, we have a very big point of view on pushing in opposite directions. Yes, we love to listen to the customer, but that whole great saying of like, if I listened to my customer, I'd make a faster horse, not a car. We believe in that too, so it's a mix of our intuition, and, you know. But when we see something black and white, and, you know, I don't know how many of you know the Kool-Aid, the brand, but the Kool-Aid man, the big thing, would like break through walls. So we did like, like you know, you see on Twitter now the designs where you make pictures at it. It's What's it called? ASCII. Yeah, cool. So when we see something like that, we go from that. Now Mike and team is ideating to something we call bridge videos. What's happening back home now when they see virality or something that's got something, now they're ideating. They're not doing research in a bubble. You know, our strategy team also has had to deal with this. It's no longer six weeks of them leading the witness to where they want it to go. Right? And then giving you a brief and then being mad at you for not doing what they thought. Right? And so we're, you know, we're looking at it and now they're deciding what one, two, three minute video are we going to make for pre-roll YouTube, for YouTube, for Facebook, for IGTV because we know those videos are going to get seen. And if those get seen, the reason we call them bridge videos is then that becomes our Super Bowl spot. Because we think Super Bowl is actually getting seen. We think Super Bowl is the best ad in America, and we think every other TV spot's the worst, besides banner ads. <laughs> They're the worst. Um, we had something on planters, right, Mike? Yeah, so we, we, Zion, who's a very famous college basketball player, had a sneaker break during a game. We jump in and Mr. Peanut does something, it catches, it builds, it builds, it leads to us to actually make a planter sneaker that came out yesterday. The idea, the idea happened in the morning, the sketch went out as a tweet in the afternoon, got 17,000 likes, we went to the client, we said let's make a sneaker, and we made a sneaker and it came out there's nothing, more fun, there's nothing more fun for us than selling ideas that already have proof from the consumer behind it. Can, you know, I see your reactions. You can imagine how much more ammo we have walking in. And it's qualitative ammo a lot of times. We talk because it's easier to understand numbers, 300,000, 17,000. I promise you, a lot of our clients say yes. Yeah, they hear the numbers, but then we show 10 or 15 screens of qual. I live on qual. I read only, I read, all I do for a living is post content and read all the comments. Mumbai and uh, like back home Instagram is like a big thing. Yes, I'm aware. Yes, I'm aware. So, what are like on your Instagram you keep telling brands and users to keep investing and keep posting on Facebook and Instagram? What do you think are the next big apps for that? I'm not sure and I never care. Okay. You know, I'm only, a, I only care about this moment. I, by the way, if television network drops their prices by 80%, I will buy a load of television. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. You know, and I don't, you know, as much as I love Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, you know, those things, in six years, you'll watch videos online of me saying it's because the price became too high for what the attention is. 
And so I always first think about the price of the attention and then I think about being a contextual creator in it. One of the things that we do very poorly in this industry as well is make our creative contextual for the distribution. You can't post the same video on LinkedIn and Instagram and expect it to do the same thing. The mindset of the consumer, even you, you yourself, are different when you're in your Instagram feed when, than when you're in your LinkedIn feed. We do not have good enough conversations around context and mindset in consumption. Oh, let me, let me, I'll get back to you, I promise. One thing that's probably unusual and a little different is we try to push, and we successfully have been able to push our clients to realize the reason all of their businesses are down is they need to be marketing in a relevant way to 15 different cohorts, not one. There is no 18 to 35. The f- is that? You know? Just look at, look at all the different creeds and, like, not, forget about the way you all look, your mindset, the psychology. So one of the considerations is upfront, through common sense. You know, like, show me any brand right now and I can give you 10 of their meaningful cohorts right now. I understand it's targeting moms. I understand within moms, and I'm gonna use America now, but with the UK and Singapore, that there's different income levels. There's different races. There's different, I think everybody in the world realizes there's different Americas within America. You know, there's a lot going on. And so if I'm gonna go after a 28-year-old woman, and she happens to love Donald Trump and she happens to make $500,000 a year, you can imagine my video or my piece of content on Instagram for Olay should be different than me going after a Hispanic woman who's 28, who lives in New York, who hates Donald Trump and who makes $73,000 a year. You can't make that same piece of content. That's just too, think about what I just said. Think about how far that actually goes. This industry sells vanilla ice cream. And, it's, and it yells it in a place where nobody hears it. That's what this is all about. This whole week is about selling vanilla ice cream and selling it to a room that doesn't exist. That to me is a problem. So, so cohorts, yes culture, one of the considerations is, I'm sure Adam and Mike will tell you, one of the wildest things is we put the client and every person that touches the business, our project managers, everybody, in a WhatsApp, Slack, or text thread, and all the ideating happens inside there with the client. One of the things you know, we'll find out is that the client gets excited and they start coming up with ideas and we start making it. One of the most fun things has been watching my creative team, that cat audacity, that's like the client doesn't have good ideas, watch client ideas do well better than their ideas. That's humbling. That's fun for me to watch. So it becomes very humble, very safe, very make, very ideas-driven environment, which just think about those words. Um, So, cohorts, the workflow, a lot of listening, strategy and insights happens after the content's in the market, not being tested. So, um, you talk about how, like, the faces at Vayner. Yes. um, Knowing a lot of creatives that have worked there, yes, um, they have been burnt out. Yes, and so they leave pretty quickly, or they have these people that have left pretty quickly. So how do you combat that to keep like the highest talent? Yeah. So pretty easy. Our you know our retention rate, our exit voluntary exit 
is 5.3%. So I don't know how many creatives you know. One thing that uh, I'm sure if you talk to Mike and Adam and not me, come to Vayner at 6.30 at night and tell me how burnt out people are. We just have nobody in the building. Like, you know, I'm a hustler, but like, there's nobody in the building at 6.30 at night, any night at VaynerMedia. There's like six people of 900 people. I'm being dead serious with you. So I, I understand that some people, you know, I think everybody will understand this. I, I, we have an unlimited vacation policy. Unlimited. We have nobody in the building at 6.30. We have a founder that puts out a ton of propaganda of hard work. We have humans that, there's people who can burn themselves out working 30 hours a week because of their DNA their anxiety levels. So without knowing who you're referring to or how many is many, to, you know, I, I think, there's, let me promise you one thing, and again, Mike and Adam are probably better when I leave to talk to, there's an incredible perception of who we are. There's a lot of weird things I do. Let me give you an example. People are not self-aware when they get fired, and you have all sorts of weird that happens, and I spent two, three years telling people who were mad at me for getting fired to go to Glassdoor and leave negative reviews. That is the reverse of what every agency does. I do that because I think emotional intelligence, back to me saying intuitive, is the only thing that matters. And I think that anybody that believes Yelp reviews or Glassdoor reviews or any anonymous reviews like Secret and Whisper are deeply, deeply cynical or don't have emotional intelligence. So I use these perceptions as ways for people not to enter. I think if you come and you actually spend time and actually look under the hood, I think we have it, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm disappointed in the work ethic at VaynerMedia. There's not a soul in the agency at 6.30. So I think we handle it pretty easily. I look at how many people voluntarily leave our company. You know, I look at things like a creative who left and came back three weeks ago that we both know, we're just, you know, I think we have it really, really good. I think that there will always, you know, we're always trying, you're always trying to be better. The reason the chief heart officer, Claude, has more power than the CFO, Allen, is because we're very warm in feelings. And, but, you know, some people are able to burn themselves out regardless of the room you create for them. You know, and so, you know, and, and by the way, one of the things I'm trying to be more conscious of is maybe they do look to me as Gary V, and maybe they're taking on that pressure. I'd hope that they see what's happening in their day-to-day, but that's, that's how I see it. Please. Yeah, I felt great about it. Like, I feel, I'm like pumped about your question. I don't, I, you know, here's what's amazing, and this is how I've thought about it, and, you'll, and I appreciate that content, and I could tell. It, was, it came from a good place. The truth always wins, right? You know, I mean, you know, Harry, you might be a great, Harry just came from BBDO. Like, I remember when we interviewed very recently, she's only been here for three, for two, months. two months. You know, and so I think the biggest thing that's going on with our shop is perception versus reality. <laughs> And, I, and it's on purpose. To be very frank, I don't want people to know what we're really up to, because if this town really knew what I was up to, they'd be way more scared and b- would be doing way more things about it. Because let me tell you what I'm doing here right now. I have no interest in recruiting you. I'm interested, I'll t- it'd be amazing. I'm interested, I'm interested in inspiring you to start your own shop and never sell it to a holding company. That's what I'm doing with my 45 minutes here. That's how we're gonna make this industry better. The reason this industry has so many, you know, inclusion issues, burnout issues, is because you're 
Excel, you guys are Excel cells. Every one of you that raised your hands are line 419, column C. You are. That is how these companies are run. I know it, because I'm a businessman. So, you like that one? That's a good one. <laughs> so, 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 so what I want is for you to think about this world. If you, imagine a world where instead of making 280,000 or 315,000 being a senior creative at a holding co, you have a business that's your shop doing 800,000 a year which trickles down to you making instead of 280, 216, but you're 8,000 times happier as a human being. It's paid. So the question was volume sets the industry, creative industry free. The question was, is that organic or is it paid? It's often, often paid because as you guys all know, the organic channels for a lot of our clients, where are we going, right? What's crazy about paid, I even, it's the first time I've got goosebumps and we said a lot of things here. Think about how much I must believe in this. It's scary to me that you can spend $80 and get massive insights. Like, I don't think people understand, especially if you don't do paid at all, or when you do paid, the paid guys and gals that are here, they spend 800,000 against something. They think it's all reach. Everybody loves reach here. Reach is potential reach, not actual consumption. You believe in GRPs? You know, you believe in impressions? Come on, you know? We, we are, and we're also putting it against sales data. So one of the reasons we're really working is they're running this creative and then it's running within a one mile radius of Albertsons or Tesco or Sainsbury or you know, Walmart. And then you're getting feedback loops that are not just quant and qual. I mean, we, we, Planters was declined or flat for nine straight years, 108 year, months, like straight. The first month before we did the Super Bowl spot, which aired in February, in January, just on this volume model, we grew the business 2%. That's a big deal for them. Like, that's real. It's just because people are seeing I mean, it's like, marketing works all day long. You just have to see it. And it has to mean something to you. So, with the art director, sorry, you looked at me. No, no, I just love that she's trying to get her second question in and I'm trying to balance it out. We're just having a fun, we're having a fun game. Go ahead. Uh, the classic like art director, copywriter, team model. Since you guys have your crazy wild, wild west WhatsApp <laughs> with the client, how do you feel about you know um, the copywriter and the art director working together? Does we love it. Work for you? Yeah, Does we have that. Sort of, the one thing that we have is every account, and we don't have this everywhere all the way yet because we're just rolling this out. But we're really close now. Every account has three full-time creatives, 100% dedicated to the logo even when it's a $500,000 fee account. And that person is a copy person, a design person, and then a, what we call a shredditor. She or he is doing film and post-production as one person, kind of what DRock does for me. And, and again, as you can imagine, that production value, when you're making 5,000 pieces of content, is not necessarily the films that, you know, it's, it's, it's native, it's the that you actually like when you're consuming content and some of it can be very high production value and we just chop a bunch down and some of it could be grab your iPhone, make this video on the counter and post it. Uh, so they are there and then above them are teams, art and copy, CDs, 
and you know what, what's happening is the the core creator team is very allocated, 100% on one account. As you go up, those teams are spread out more, but they're all making. I mean, the, the thing I put the most pressure on Adam and Mike about is, I need you on the way to work, write a tweet for Budweiser or Rolling Rock to set the tone that if our GCDs are making, it, this is a making culture. You have people that start hitting GCD level that never make a single thing for seven, 10, make a single thing. One more question. I'll, I'll talk to you after. Hi. Hi. So you were talking about like buying like companies. Yes. For like because you never like you want to understand the companies more. But why nostalgic? Because nostalgia is the most underpriced thing in the world. And you know it sucks because ten years ago when I was talking about it, nobody knew. Now everybody knows. Fila, Champion, Marvel, like the whole culture is playing on nostalgia. Like 10 years ago, I could have bought Dragon Ball Z or Pokemon. I could have bought this cheap. Now everybody kind of knows. Way more than they did 10 years ago. Now I have to be more clever. Now I have to find IP in places people don't see it. You know? Like, but it was, I mean, I was so on it. I just, my timing didn't work out. The world didn't melt. Like, we, we work on Fila. Like, we're thrilled to be part of that. I mean, Fila went from being... N- Irrelevant to making dad shoes that every cool girl wears. That's cool. That's interesting. That's like something nobody saw when we started working on it a couple years ago. I did a deal with K Swiss, me personally. I have a K Swiss sneaker. K Swiss was off the grid for 20 years, like never on your grid. It was big right before Nike got big. It was cool with like Ice T and like early Dr. Dre and Mike Tyson. It was 80 stuff. And it was easy for me to reboot it and be successful because. Nostalgia sits. Nostalgia sits. Like any Nickelodeon thing that I reboot will hit your radar. You know? And so it's the most underpriced thing because it makes you feel something. And it makes you feel something about when you were in a much happier, simple place, which always plays to a grown up when their life is complicated and intense. Doug feels really good when you're worried about the world. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thanks guys for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching.